Well, it's an amazing thing to think that one day when all the believers stand before the Lord Jesus, we'll stand faultless. That's incredible. I don't know about you, but I'm very well aware of my sin. I'm very well aware of what I deserve. Well, I tell you, sometimes I have trouble getting my head around grace. But on that day, we'll stand covered, faultless. Incredible. Well, I'm glad you're here this morning. Good crowd, finally. And uh, we're glad, glad that you're here. I want you to take your Bible this morning. I want you to go back with me to the book of Joshua. Hey, uh, guys, would you turn the lights down just a little bit, please? It's kind of glaring on me, and I want to be able to see eyes. Let's go to Joshua chapter 6, and we'll be looking at some verses in chapter 6 and chapter 7. Let me tell you what I want to do today. I want to finish up some of our thoughts on the book of Joshua. Okay, the title this morning may be somewhat strange. Uh, the title is, What Belongs to God Don't Touch. Now, I know that's a strange title. We're told in seminary, you got to have a title. And I struggled all week long. I knew what I was going to say, kind of, but I wasn't sure I, to make a title out of it. So I just kind of threw something together. And, and basically what, what it means is this. Whatever God says, we better listen to. And whatever God says, we better obey. If he says don't touch it, then I would suggest, church, we don't touch it. If he, uh, if he says go ahead and enjoy it, then I would suggest we have at it and enjoy it. What it means is this, is that God is in total control, and it really makes no difference what our desires are, really makes no difference what our opinions are, makes no difference what our feelings are, makes no difference what our want-tos are, Whatever God says, his people must obey. Now, frankly, that doesn't mean we like everything. And it doesn't mean that we understand everything. But it does mean that we are to obey everything. And one of the things I hope that we've gathered out of our study in Joshua is that whatever God says, it's his right to say it, our response to it, is to that to be that of obedience, okay? And I'll tell you, as I've walked through Joshua, I've seen it repeatedly, especially the instructions concerning the conquest of Jericho, strange commands that the people received from God, but it was God's right to give and the people's responsibility to obey. Now, I don't know, I, I've alluded to a concept as we've walked through chapter 6 and chapter 7, and I want to kind of close out our thoughts on Joshua with it, okay? I think it's crucial for the people of God to understand, if we're going to get along with God, to understand what the concept is. Now, my Bible, my translation uses the word ban, okay? Your translation may be the word devoted things, I think the NIV maybe has devoted things. I think King James perhaps may have the accursed things. What I want to do this morning is define that term or define that concept. We're going to read a few verses together. I'm going to define it for you. In fact, I already have. We're going to define it for you. And then I want to try to draw some principles from it and then see if I can make an application to it. Okay? I want to first of all, let's stand if you can in honor of God's word. And I want us to read some verses, chapter 6, a few verses, chapter 7, a few verses, and then we'll, we'll march on, okay? Chapter 6, beginning verse uh, 17, okay? 
The Bible says the city shall be under, my translation has ban. What does yours have? There's the, I heard the vote. What was the other one? What, what translation has accursed? King James. Devoted is, what translation? NIV, good. Okay. Shall be under the ban so that you do not covet them and take some of the things under the ban and make the camp of Israel accursed and bring trouble on it. But all the silver and gold, articles of bronze and iron are holy to the don't this is are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. Okay, now look at chapter seven, verse one. But the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, from the tribe of Judah, took some of the things under the ban. Therefore, the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. Verse 11, Israel has sinned. They have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. They have even taken some of the things under the ban and have both stolen and deceived. Moreover, they have put them among their own things. Therefore, the sons of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies, for they have become accursed. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy the things under the ban from your midst. Then verse 15, it shall be that the one who has taken with the things under the ban shall be burned with fire, he and all that belongs to him, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has committed a disgraceful thing in Israel. Well, let's pray. Father, I, I pray you'll help me today to share this incredible concept. God, as we study your word, there are moments where our words or phrases, verses just leap off the Bible and just burn our heart. To me, this concept, of banning or devoted or accursed, that, that has grabbed my heart. I pray it grabs all our hearts. And God, help me as I communicate what you've laid on my heart about it to my people. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thanks. Be seated. Keep your Bible open. We'll refer back to some of the, the verses. I think what I need to do first is to define what the ban is, okay? And I want to... The definition I want to start with comes actually from the Jewish Encyclopedia. If anybody knows, the Jews should know, right? Well, here's what it says. It's the proclamation of devotion to a deity. Now, I wish I just said God because we know deity is God, so I'm going to insert that. It's the proclamation of devotion to God. Persons or things to be excluded from personal use or utterly destroyed. Some define it this way, to devote by total destruction or extermination. It's actually from a Hebrew word, root word meaning to flatten the nose or to, to wipe away. So in essence, when the scriptures talk about banning, it's the concept that means that whatever is declared by God as his, 
whatever he says, this is under the ban, it is his right to determine its use or its destruction if he chooses destruction. And if you notice when we read, God declared that everything in Jericho was his. It was for his exclusive use. Look at chapter 6, 17, 18, and 19 that we just read. Those verses tell us three things. That Rahab and her family were to be spared. Remember that? That the silver, gold, bronze, and iron were to go into the treasury. And everything else was to be destroyed. God said it, and it was to be so. That's the concept of what is called the ban, or some say banning. Now, it's not a new term here in Joshua. It goes all the way back to Leviticus. In fact, in Leviticus 27, it says, Anything devoted to destruction is most holy to the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter 7 says this, You shall not bring an abomination into your house and like it under the ban. You shall utterly detest it, and you shall utterly utterly abhor it, for it is something banned. Deuteronomy chapter 13 says this, And nothing which is under the ban shall cling to your hand in order that the Lord may turn from his burning anger and show mercy to you and have compassion on you. So let me ask you a question. Do you understand at this point what the ban is or the concept of the ban or what banning is? Do you get it? In essence, it's whatever God declares holy to the Lord and it's his right to determine what he does with what he owns. What he owns, he controls. It's his right to do. And when God applied this concept at Jericho, gang, he wasn't being selfish. He was being righteous. He knew what he was doing because he knew what he was doing was in the best interest of his people because they had never experienced a victory like this. Man, all of the promised land was going to be theirs. They had never gone in in a military fashion like this. They had never had this kind of a victory. He knew the tendency of people is that when something good happens, to claim it as their own. God said, it isn't yours. It's mine. You didn't fight the battle. I fought the battle. Therefore, if it's mine, I have the right of control over it. In fact, if you look at chapter 6, verse 18, there's an interesting idea there. But as for you, only keep yourself from the things under the ban so that you don't covet them and take some of the things under the ban. And now notice, and make the camp of Israel accursed. That's the same word. Accursed and bring trouble on it. Now here's what God says. If you take something that which I own, if you take something that's under the ban, you'll be under the ban. If you take what I've told you to destroy and take it for personal use and use it for yourselves when it's mine, then you will be banned. Now, gang, I want to submit to you. I understand what was going on back then. I understand what God was doing. I hope you do. But listen, one of the beautiful things about the Word of God is taking principles 
and drawing out applications for our life today. What was true then is true today. And somehow in our minds, somehow in our hearts, we've got to understand that what God owns, God has the right to control. And the moment we begin to inject ourselves into that, then we lose the very foundation that makes the church strong, in fact, made our nation strong. I spoke last night at a church at a wild game supper. Somehow they got this idea, I'm a great warrior. I didn't tell them any deer. Well, I did tell them. I missed my first 20 deer before I ever killed one with my bow. So I guess I was pretty honest with that. But as I was talking to them, I shared with them that, you know, it's easy for us in our culture to begin to lament everything that's wrong in society. And we have our challenges, no doubt. I mean, we, we know that. There are those who will spend a lot of time talking about all of our political problems. And, and again, we've got some political problems, okay? Talking about our economic problems, and we've got some of those. Our climate problems, I'm so sick of snow and all of that. We, we could just talk a long time. But let me tell you what I told them. The problem in our nation today, and the problem in our churches today is not plural. It's singular. We have a theology problem. That's it. We have weak doctrine today. Man, we have everything under the sun to help every bleeding nose there is out there. I mean, there's books out there that says seven steps to a perfect marriage. If I've only got seven things wrong with my marriage, I feel like I'm pretty good, you know? And we spend all of our time dealing in all those issues. But the fact of the matter, gang, our problem today is theology. We have a skewed concept of God. And if we were to get that right then we would be okay as a nation. That's what was wrong. They lost the thought and the fear of God, and God had to remind them. And I want to remind you that all that we have and all that we are is because of the graciousness of Almighty God. And the moment we forget that, then God will do to us what he did to them, remind us as he reminded them that he is God who owns all the cattle on a thousand hills. God is in control. Everything that we have comes from God. And if we don't acknowledge that, and if we don't become good stewards of that, then God can respond any way at any time to that. And I believe that as God reminded the nation of Israel there at this point in their history, why would God not? Remind this great nation at this time in our history of that very fact. Now, do you understand banning? You get the idea? Go this or do this. If it's clear as mud, raise your hand. Clear, clear as mud. There we go. That's all right. We, it just simply means what God owns. God has, God owns, and he has the right to it. Now, let me give you a couple principles that I think okay, apply. First of all, for principle number one, is that it's a question of ownership rights, which means it's a matter of orthodoxy. I'll explain that. It's a matter of what we believe, and I just kind of alluded to that, okay? If we believe that God is sovereign, then we must believe that God owns it all and has the right to declare how everything that he owns is to be done. Now, gang, that includes you. If you've been saved by grace then God owns you. You understand that? 
and you're his. We've been redeemed by grace. That means that God owns us, not just on church on Sunday life, but that God owns us every day of the week, every moment of the day, every waking moment. We are to live under the rules of ownership that God can declare whatever he wants to with what he owns. Now, if you're not part of the family of God, you've got a bigger problem. If you're not sure you're saved, you've got a bigger problem. If you've not been redeemed by his grace through the blood of Calvary, you've got a bigger problem. But those who have been, we've got to understand that, that God has ownership rights. That includes your time, okay? includes your time. It includes your treasures. It includes your talents. And when we don't accept this and, and when we don't follow this truth, then our theology is skewed. Our belief structures are not sound. Foundations begin to shake and we begin to develop fissures and small cracks and ultimately our values begin to erode. And then the fear of God gets misplaced. That's why I said to you, I think we have a theology problem in our churches. We're into everything except doctrine. And I believe it's incumbent upon pastors like me and pastors like Don and pastors all over our nation to call our people back to sound doctrine. And I think the only way you do that is you take passages of Scripture. And the first words out of your mouth is open up to John or open up to Matthew. Let's look at 5 or 6, 7, 8, 10 verses, whatever it is. Let's see what God has to say about who he is and what that means to us. It's a question of ownership rights. It's a question of orthodoxy. It's a question of what we believe. Now, there's a second principle. You see it up there. It's a question of stewardship responsibility. It's a matter of orthopraxy. It's a matter of how we behave. Now, now hang with me and I'll explain. Orthodoxy is right belief. Orthodoxy means that we've taken God's word and we've formed core values around God's word. We know what, who God is. We know what he says. Our head understands who God is. Orthopraxy is taking what we know and living it right. Orthopraxy involves our behavior. Now, I want you to listen to me. Those two principles flow together. And if they're not flowing together, you have spiritual chaos. And spiritual chaos is what we have in our churches today. We say we believe certain things, but in society we behave differently than what we say we believe. And you can't have it that way. You know why? Because that's inconsistent with biblical Christianity. It's inconsistent with biblical truth. If you say, I believe this, but then you act in a way that's inconsistent with what you say you believe, you're not a Christian. That's not biblical Christianity. If your behavior doesn't match your belief, you've got real problems. And I want to submit to you today in the church, we have real problems because we say one thing and then we live totally different. And that's inconsistent with Bible truth. Can I give you a couple examples? 
We say that we are believers in the value of life. We say that we're believers in the sanctity of life. All of us will go to the Word of God and say every life has value. I don't care what you've done. I don't care how many mistakes you've made. I don't care, man, care what your thought processes are at times. I'm saying to you that the Word of God tells us and we believe that every life has value. There's a sanctity of life. And then we say women have the right to choose over an unborn baby to keep or give away. A baby that has no choice. Now, gang, there's an inconsistency there with many in the church. On the one hand, we say we, we believe in the value of life. And on the other hand, we say it's okay to abort babies have, that have no voice, that have no choice. And you can't have biblical Christianity if you say it, but then don't act it. You with me on that? Let me give you another example, which is becoming more prevalent today. We say marriage has biblical foundations. We go to the book of Genesis, and we say yes, and we affirm yes, one man to one woman. That's what it says. Male and female. That's what it says. And yet we think same-sex marriage is up to the person. So instead of objective truth that paves the way for our lives, we pine away for subjective feelings. Oh, God must love them. They're really good people, and they are good people, and God does love them. But there's some biblical admonitions, and there's some biblical rules that we have to follow. And when we say something that we believe, but then don't live something then there's an inconsistency between what's called orthodoxy and orthopraxy. And here's the danger. Church, here's the danger. You can't separate the two principles. They're both one and the same. And it's called Christianity. It's called Christ followers. And when you separate the two and, and you allow a dichotomy to come between the two, you don't have biblical Christianity. You don't have Christianity. Now, you may not think that's a big thing, but I'm telling you it's a big thing today, and it's growing bigger and bigger and bigger, and there's churches coming out. Pastors are coming out in support of same-sex marriage. And there's a speed by which I've never seen happening in our, in our Southern Baptist Convention. It's happening. And you can't have that dichotomy if you're going to understand the ownership and the stewardship teachings of the Word of God. And I understand who we are. I understand we're not there. There may be some that are there here. I don't know. I'm not aware of that. I'm telling you, you need to know what I think. You need to know what I believe. You need to know what the scriptures teach us. Because we can't have this dichotomy and call ourselves biblical Christianity. Can I be so rude to say to you, if you really believe that, you're not a Christian. You're not a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. Because instead of living by feelings, you have to live by God's truth. Not by, not by subjectiveness, but by objectiveness. A nation has to have a body of truth that governs their lives. 
And gang, I know Tom. I know that that body of truth can't be inside my heart because my heart's fickle. It's desperately wicked, the Bible says. Therefore, I have to have some kind of a body of truth, some objective body that I can look at that determines my decisions and my directions in life. And beloved, that's the Bible. That's the Word of God. Okay? You can't separate the two principles. They're one and the same. And if you try to, I say to you in love, if you try to, then you're not a Christian. You're not a biblical Christian, which means you're not a Christian. And there's coming a day when you'll stand before God and be held accountable to that. Nowhere in the Bible is there a difference between belief and behavior. That doesn't mean you're perfect, but it means that you line yourself up under the teachings of the Word of God. In Isaiah, God said, My glory I will not give to another. America and her churches, desperately, we need to wake up to this truth. Israel, as a nation, Achan as an individual, at the very beginning of their conquest, forgot who God was. And God reminded them. And I believe that God is going to remind America the same way. Okay, now, I want to kind of draw it together if I can. I struggled here. Uh, I want to I give you a test. And, and I hope it connects. Maybe it doesn't, but I hope it does. God in his grace oftentimes uses remedial judgments, disciplines on his children to bring about change in their lives, individually and collectively. I look back over my life. Sometimes we call it wake-up calls. Sometimes we call it uh, God's disciplines. Sometimes we, 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 we call it uh, God getting our attention, second opportunities. We go by a lot of different terms. Basically what it is is God applying pressure, disciplines to our lives to get our attention, which should lead us to repentance which would lead us to start all over again. That's called by many theologians remedial judgments. I'll tell you what that is. It's when your kids mess up. You know, I, I have flashbacks. My dad's saying, Tom, bend over. You know, my goodness, if he was alive today and, and doing that today, he'd be put in jail for child abuse, you know, because uh, every time I saw him, he said, bend over, Tom, let's get over it, you know. What was that? That's remedial judgment from daddy. That's because I said something or did something, or didn't do something, I should have done. So my dad, because he's mean, no. Daddy, because he loved me, applied some pressure to my life, sometimes in the different places that I was. That's called remedial judgment. Now listen to me. Oftentimes in Scripture, God uses remedial judgments to get our attention so that we repent to bring about change in our lives. So let me give you a couple tests, or three tests. Number one's a pride test. Who really gets the glory from your life? The Bible says God gives grace to the humble. So the pride, the pride test is, is it about God and God's glory, or is it about you and your good? You see, if, if my head is to line up with my heart, if my orthodoxy and my orthopraxy are to be the same, then I think I have to ask, well, who is this about anyway? Is it about what I want and my desires? 
Or is it about the glory of God? The pride test. Who gets the glory from your life? Number two, the possessions test. Who does this really belong to anyway? You see, the spiritual law of sowing and reaping applies here. And I have to tell you, I hesitated here. I almost marked this out because I want to tell you, and I'm going to tell our next service, well, I'm so proud of our church. I'm so proud of you people. Gang, we're, we're uh, what is it, over $52,000, $56,000 above and beyond our regular giving to help us get out of debt. We did that in almost two months. And so I'm almost hesitant to even talk about possessions, but, but it's what came out. Who really owns it? Is God really true when God says do this or don't do that, that he really knows what he's talking about? How about the personal ambition test? Are you content to be who you are for the glory of God? Is there anything chewing at you? Is there always something churning that makes you have trouble accepting the fact that God fashioned you after his heart, after his marvelous design? Can you accept the fact that you are who you are because God made you who you are? You see, gang, I believe that God's people have to somehow bridge what they say they believe to how they live their life. And if there's an inconsistency there, then we have cause to question whether really we are born-again believers in Christ. You can't go to the Scripture and make that dichotomy. You can't say, well, what you believe and how you behave are different. You can't do that. It's not in there. Even the book of James, the most practical book in all of the Bible, a book that was the latest, latest added because they thought it was nothing more than straw. Martin Luther said it was a straw epistle. You read James, but you know what you find? That James talks about life, behavior, that stems from your belief. It's the same coin, just opposite sides. Let me tell you how it came true to me. When I got uh, grabbed by God, and fell in love with God, uh, things radically began to change in my life. Most of you know that I was in sales and and a big company, and we would have our sales meetings, and we would gather together for sales meetings, usually two-day sales meetings. And uh, generally what happened was before the sales meeting, there was about an hour, hour and a half, two hours of what they call happy time. I don't know how you get happy with a headache, but... Uh, we called it happy hour, happy time. And uh, my boss called me in one day. This is right in the process of God leading up to call me to, to preach. And uh, he called me in. And he said, Tom, I just want to talk to you. He said, your, the company uh, appreciates your work. And, and uh, there's an opportunity coming for a big promotion. And your name is kind of at the top of the list. I, I think it's yours if you want it. And, but they told me to talk to you because you have a problem. And I said, really? And he said, yeah. We've noticed that over the course of the last year, that when we have our happy times, our happy hours, uh, you don't come anymore. And when it's time for the meeting, you show up. And when the meeting's over, you go home. And, Tom, I, I just want you to know that uh, it's, it's, it could hurt your career, that, that if you don't 
adjust a little bit that you may get passed over. And so I told my boss, I said, well, I said, you need to know that over the last year, God has really done some things in my life, and, and I've resisted some of it, but he's trying to do some purifying in my life, and it's not easy. But one of the things that God has allowed me to do is start teaching Sunday school to young boys. And it scares me to think that I'm giving my life to some young boys and they or perhaps their parents would see me at a happy hour and my testimony would suffer there. And he said, well, Tom, I, I commend you for that. But he said, you don't have to drink. Just hold a glass of water. And I said, well, I said, there's two problems with that. Number one, I'm not good at holding water. Uh, I, at that time in my life, I liked to drink. And I said, I don't know that I could go to that thing and just drink water when there's other things there. And the second thing, more importantly, is how would they know it was water? Well, they said, don't hold anything. How would they know that I'm not drinking in a bar with a bunch of drinkers? And he said, Tom, it'll hurt your career. And I was faced with a dilemma because I liked what I did. I didn't know God was going to call me to preach. I want to tell you, I liked the game. Nobody likes sales like I like sales. I churn, man. I love the racket, you know. But I said to him, honoring God is more important than my career. You see, there came a moment when I had to decide if what I said I believed really applied to how I behaved. There came a moment when my orthodoxy and my orthopraxy had to kiss. And it was that moment where I began to change, God began to change some things in my life. And I want to say to you that we all struggle with that, I understand. But in today's society and in the Christian culture today, you need to know what I have come to know. That you can't say you believe and then behave in a totally inconsistent way because there's no biblical support for that. You have to decide, is it worth living what you believe? And those who can't and those who don't have a real spiritual problem. And perhaps, I don't know the heart and I'm not a judge, but perhaps if there's an inconsistency, They've never come to understand God's amazing grace. They've never come to understand the redemption that is full through the blood of the cross where Jesus died. And I've come to the persuasion after all these many years in church, there is a significant percentage of those on the rolls, and I think there's some percentage of that of them attending church on any given Sunday. I'm not saying you're not. I, I, that's you between you and God. I tell you what I've come to believe. If you were to take the roles of our church, there would be a, probably a significant percentage 
that really don't understand that orthodoxy and orthopraxy means Christianity. And there may be some that are coming on Sunday that have never experienced the fullness of God through the cleansing of the blood and the joy that comes in an eternal relationship with Jesus Christ. The sad thing is, one day they're going to know it. One day they're going to realize it. But it's going to be too late. Too late. Well, this closes Joshua. Where are you? Where are you? In a moment, we'll sing and walk out these doors. We'll go to Sunday school. As you walk through those doors, I'd like for you to ask yourself, God, where do I stand on this issue? Because you see, it's more than just a cultural issue. It's an eternal issue. Let's pray. Father, in Christ's name, I pray that maybe something that's been said by the foolishness of preaching today might be taken by your Holy Spirit and poured into the heart of these some of these dear people. Help us to understand the head is not important. It's the heart. And the heart must be redeemed through Christ. These next few moments, Father, we give to you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's stand.